it seems like creatives always get a bad rap. From childlike tantrums and ridiculous green room requests, strange superstitions, and even self-mutilation, it's clear that artists have plenty of strange habits. But they've also made a pretty big impact on the world. Hi, I'm Kate Rooney. And I'm Jess Scuffy. And you're listening to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle, the leading flat rate graphic design and creative services platform. In this podcast, we'll be uncovering the fascinating myths and shocking stories behind the artists we love, or in some cases, love to hate, as we try to determine, are creatives the worst? Hello, and welcome to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle. I'm Jess Guffey, and I'm joined by my sad girl winter co-host, Kate <laughs> Rooney. <laughs> sad happy sad girl winter (laughs) happy sad girl winter for those of you wondering what sad girl winter is does anyone remember what hot girl summer was well we turned it into sad girl winter (laughs) we don't know what it means i've just found out i'm deficient in vitamin d so feel a little low it's been raining in california which never happens it's been raining in arizona which also never happens so just like time to cuddle up and wear a big sweater and be basic i think is what that means well i've been doing that anyways so (laughs) (laughs) off to a great start off to a great start indeed kate i do have a funny quick anecdote for you because we talk about psychology so much on this show Mm -hmm. i witnessed a psychological like incident yesterday and (laughs) I have no idea how to describe this so I was eating dinner with my parents and my mom and I went to pick up the sushi and we were driving back and there's like an abandoned grocery store parking lot that's huge and no one's ever in it and we're driving back and the parking lot is completely full and there are people everywhere and we're like okay we have to see what's going on because this is very weird it's an abandoned building like it's surrounded by other businesses like target and some restaurants but like that parking lot is huge and always empty Mm -hmm. so we pull in and we roll down the window and we ask someone on the side we're like hey what are you guys doing here and the kid goes we don't really know (laughs) (laughs) so we're like okay so we pull up to the next group of people i mean they're like i can't describe to you how many people there were at this parking lot what? there were so many people and so we ask an older couple that we saw we were like hey what are you guys doing here we don't really know what uh, what excuse <laughs> so, me there was no drive-in theater set up there was no stage it's like just a confusion convention yeah so then my mom and i were talking about herd mentality and like Uh how people probably pulled in and got out of their cars because they thought something was happening (laughs) and we played into the same thing (laughs) yeah but we left once no one could tell us what was happening were people just sitting in their cars people were like walking around a lot of people weren't wearing masks but then there were some really funky cool cars so then i was like maybe it's like a low-key car show Uh uh-huh and people are just like walking around looking at cars. It was the strangest thing. And then a couple hours later when I went home, it was completely empty again. Whoa. It felt like a fever dream. <laughs> that is really bizarre. And fascinating because, yeah, it, it maybe it was the car show. But if you went up to two people and they're like, I don't know. They weren't there I, oh, for the, the car show. The one kid called it a park and chill that got out of hand. <laughs> And I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? Show. <laughs> like, like that's what we're doing now. Is everyone just so bored with the pandy that we're parking and chilling? Everyone has watched every show on Netflix, so it's no longer no longer Netflix and chill. It's park and chill. That's what we're doing now. I just couldn't get over that, and I said I have to tell Kate this because the psychology behind just seeing people parked and uh-huh. also parking and trying to find what's going on. I am so fascinated by that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, I, yeah, I have no words for it. I mean, I had to tell you because I truly couldn't wrap my head around it, and I don't think anyone can, because what are any of us doing these days? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> being being sad girls in winter. I guess. Doing our best. I guess. I well, I know what you and I are going to do. We're going to record a podcast. Heck, yes, we are. You're going to tell me a story today. And... Uh, here's the thing, Jess. I'm I'm struggling with this one. Oh, boy. Especially since the last person that I covered was Martha Stewart, who, despite her legal troubles, really became an inspiration to me. And uh, we, we sure. left that episode, well, 
I don't want to give it away. Go back and listen to it to see if we decide she's the worst. But spoiler alert, she's not really. She's kind of amazing. And I love her. Agreed. And I am doing a total 180 and and going with someone that I despise. Oh, boy. Uh And I... (laughs) We're going to hate record today. Yeah. I feel really icky even talking about him, but... This person has been making headlines. Well, let me rephrase that. The death of this person has made headlines recently. So, yeah. I have an idea now. Oh, yeah. So, we are covering the infamous producer and convicted murderer, Phil Spector, today. Wow. (sighs) Heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. Uh, right on Sad Girl Winter theme. Let's right? go. <laughs> maybe maybe it'll work out for Sad Girl Winter. I mean, Phil Spector, he has undoubtedly left a huge legacy in the music industry and at his peak has been considered the Scorsese or Kubrick of pop music, if you will. Sure. He was a producer for the Ronettes, the Crystals, Beatles, and the Ramones. During the 60s, he had placed 24 records in the top 40 with 13 top 10 singles. So without a doubt, he has made his mark in the music industry. Still, though, I'm really struggling Still. with this. Um, yeah. What, well, how do you feel? What, what do you know about Phil Spector at this point. I've never done a deep dive into his life. I know the basics and mm-hmm. I know about the murder and him rotting away in jail. I just have never bothered to look him up because I think he's trash. So yeah. I'm excited to hear other stories about him and maybe feel a little bit stronger about his impact on the music world. But other than that, I don't feel like my opinion's going to be changed. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, he's he's done a lot. He's kind of created this signature sound called uh, the Wall of Sound, which is also called Spectre Sound. And that's been emulated by a ton of artists, particularly Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. If you haven't listened to it yet, go back and listen to our episode on Brian Wilson because we talk a lot about his influence in the music industry, but he was, in fact, influenced by Spectre and, and called him the biggest inspiration of my entire life. <laughs> John, John Lennon even said that Phil Spectre was the greatest record producer ever of all time. Just like a really strong, strong superlative to give him. Yeah. But, okay. Oh, right. Quick disclaimer for this episode, we will be talking about abuse and gun violence and even suicide. So if you don't want to hear that, then go back and, and listen to other episodes or skip ahead. And I am absolutely in no way trying to glorify Phil Spector in any way. I'm just laying out the facts as based on my research. And there's also a lot of conflicting information out there, too. So this is just based off what I found, and if anything's wrong or if you feel very strongly about him, please let us know at podcastdesignpickle.com. <sighs> let's do it. Let's let's just talk about let's, this. Let's do it. Garbage person. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we got to balance out the good with the evil, I guess. Right. It's are. life. Okay. So Harvey Phillips Specter was born on December twenty sixth, nineteen thirty nine, day after Christmas. Boxing Day, and was raised in the Bronx. We are kind of once again starting out with a rough start to his childhood. While he was 10, his father committed suicide. And the only thing you really need to know about this is that on his headstone, he had inscribed, Ben Spector, father, husband, to know him was to love him. I just don't have words. It's it's so sad. And I think that makes such a profound impact on children if you're losing your dad like that at that age. Yeah, I agree. So after this, Phil moves to L.A. with his mother. I didn't see a ton of information about her, but it has been said that she was a bit overbearing. And even from a young age, music was very important to Phil. When he was in high school in L.A., he formed a band called the Teddy Bears. And they... <laughs> We were talking about goldfish before we started recording, and I thought you were going to say Teddy Grahams, because oh, apparently I'm hungry again. <laughs> I have a pack of goldfish sitting on my desk right now. I would love to pair it with a nice Teddy Graham. Do you have Teddy a- Grahams are awesome. 
Ooh, pro tip, get some, uh, <laughs> so gross, <laughs> some cake frosting and dip your Teddy Grahams into that. Uh, that's not gross at all. That sounds amazing. They used to make a snack that was prepackaged with Teddy Grahams and like a frosting type vibe. Are you thinking of Dunkaroos? No, it oh. was like Teddy Graham specific, oh, but it okay. was, you know, they definitely don't make it anymore. Do they even make Teddy Grahams anymore? Are we dating ourselves? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> More on that later. (laughs) No, they were not the Teddy Grahams. They were the Teddy Bears. (laughs) And they recorded a song called To Know Him Is To Love Him, based off the inscription on his father's gravestone, of course. And this became one of the biggest hits of 1957, oddly enough. Wow. Just a little high school uh, band here. Uh, After this, though, all of the other singles, they released flop. So the band disbanded. It's probably a better way to say that. (laughs) See what you did there. (laughs) See what you did there. (laughs) But he started working with a producer named Lester Sill in L.A., and under his suggestion, he ended up moving back to New York City to serve as an apprentice under producers Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. And they started creating like a bunch of hits here. They started already working with some big names in music. And Phil Spector co-wrote Ben E. King's hit Spanish Harlem and uh, performed music on the Drifters album and whatnot. So in 1961, he ends up forming a new label with Lester Sill, and it was called Phil, I don't know how to pronounce this, Phil's Records, but it's like a mix of Lester Sill's name and Phil Spector's name. Yeah, they came together, created this new record label in LA. And this is when Phil started to really like show his unique skills and his visions on how to like create unique sounds. His reputation as a producer really skyrocketed at this point. He started to focus his attention on a girl group called the Crystals. You might be familiar with them. They are the ones who, well, with his guidance, they created the controversial song, He Hit Me and It Felt Like a Kiss. Mm, not loving that. Not loving that. I did not know that he was behind the song. And admittedly, I, I really liked this song. I, it's The lyrics are dark and scary, but it was used in a episode of Mad Men ah. in a really like cool way. And then I believe it was The National did a cover of it that's really beautiful. Still, very dark undertones. The song was actually written by Carol King and Jerry Goffin under Spectre's guidance, though. Love, Carol. The name alone kind of tells you what it's about. It's definitely about domestic abuse. And it ended up getting banned from radio because of that. And even Carol King in, in later interviews said that she was sorry she had anything to ever do with the song because she herself was a survivor of domestic abuse. And she tended to write song not to get on the Carol King train, but she tended to write songs that were a little more upbeat and like mm-hmm. yeah. just like more positive. So that's interesting that she was behind that. I know. Yeah, but because of all of the controversy, the song totally flopped and Phil Spector took charge and he ended up firing the original singer and the crystals and replaced her with the singer Darlene Love and all of her backup singers. Under the new singers, they released a new single called He's a Rebel, and that became a huge hit, number one single. Sure. So after one year of producing all these great songs, Phil bought out the company and was the sole owner and became a millionaire at just 21 years old. Damn. I kind of like the Eddie Murphy episodes, like, I cannot imagine being so young, being like, 19 20 21 and just having loads of success and fame and money at that point what i mean normal 21 year olds most that age are in college being assholes <laughs> and like there was a point when i was that age when i i was at taco bell at like one in the morning and my card was declined <laughs> so yeah like that was the normal thing to be doing kind of hard to fathom <laughs> from from our finding random hot dog stands on the streets of Chicago and getting hot dogs at 3 a.m. Who would do that? Really good. Not me. (laughs) (laughs) And while he's a 21-year-old millionaire, he's responsible for producing 20 consecutive smash hits, just hit after hit. He, like, understood how to push the boundaries and pull emotions out of these songs and get, like, the coolest, most unique sounds. So all of this was super unique, and America loved it. 
And this is also when he would create his trademark wall of sound, which I mentioned at the top of the episode. And this is basically like a dense layer of uh, orchestral instruments, such as strings, woodwind, brass, instruments that aren't normally heard in like pop music or like youth pop music, especially, and just layering them all on top of each other to create this really rich, uh, dense sound. And he worked with the famous Wrecking Crew, which, again, also throw back to the Brian Wilson episode. He he worked with them as well. The Wrecking Crew is just a collection of musicians who played on hundreds of top 40 hits, just played with different musicians and different producers and contributed their skills. Quick side note on producers. I know we're going to spend the entire episode, obviously, talking about his production and, like, the artists that he was behind, but they really fascinate me because you don't necessarily know their names. Of course, Mm -hmm. they're famous producers. People know his name because of his extracurricular activities. (laughs) But a lot of times you don't know the producers behind your favorite artists unless they're also musicians themselves. And it's so fascinating to me because they're almost like CEOs of bands, right? And Mm -hmm. like dictating the direction and dictating the vision. But like, you don't know anything about them. And they're so talented. It's just wild. I agree. I think that it's really fascinating. And I almost would say that it's kind of shifted a little bit in more recent years as we've seen the rise of EDM music and where these quote unquote like DJs or producers are becoming the names. Whereas like you might not know who sang the song on a, a really popular song that's out. You know what I mean? That's like it, so true. Yeah. But, but still, yeah, I, I agree. I think we put a lot of emphasis on the musicians because they're on the stage and that's the face that we see. But a lot of the times it's the producers and the songwriters who are the ones really totally. creating the magic. And that's certainly in Phil Spector's case. Just based off like the quotes we heard at the top of the episode, there are huge, huge stars and musicians that credit Phil Spector for their success, basically, and saying, like, he's been my biggest influence. But also, the murder aside, which we will obviously be getting to, he was not a great person in the studio either. He was very problematic. So when he's kind of crafting all of these different styles and, and working with the Wrecking Crew, he explained in an interview that he was looking for a sound, a sound so strong that if the material was not the greatest, the sound would carry the record. Interesting. So it's all about like fitting it together like a jigsaw puzzle, which is most think like uh, the movie Minority Report, <laughs> where Tom Cruise is like, putting all these like screens together and moving it around. Actually, that's a terrible analogy that doesn't make sense to end. It doesn't apply <laughs> to any of this. My face is just blank right now because I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> it's a really good movie. <laughs> just no emotion. It always catches me off guard when you reference movies that I haven't heard of because you're always like, I don't watch movies. <laughs> I've never seen a movie in my life, but have you seen Minority Report? <laughs> I'm like, where are you pulling these movies from? <laughs> it's an old one. So. Uh, you know, it's on my brain because uh, we were talking about it earlier this week. Russ Perry, our CEO, was comparing it to something else. And I like loved that movie when it came out. So it was like, oh, yeah, Minority Report. <laughs> I don't know why it's still in my brain right now. Anywho. Well, thanks. Thanks for that reference. <laughs> you should go watch it. Because he was using like the wrecking crew and having this wall of sound layering all these different pieces and instruments his arrangements would require large ensembles and he would be doubling or tripling all the parts to just create that richer tone it sounded almost kind of chaotic we we talked about pet sounds in the brian wilson episode how it was like whoa there's so much happening right now but it was such a new thing at the time and yeah uh, it does add a new level to music when you're listening to it kind of making it more complicated and and interesting. And, of course, a ton of artists started using this technique. Brian Wilson with Pet Sounds and Bruce Springsteen even said that he emulated the sound for his 1975 recording of Born to Run. So think about that. If we we didn't have, I don't even want to say it. I don't want to phrase it this way, but Phil Spector's creation of Wall of Sound is what led to Pet Sounds and Born to Run, which are iconic in their own right. Why couldn't he have just been nicer? 
<laughs> Why can't we just celebrate him? That's it. The episode's done. You're right. Hot takes. Hot takes of wisdom over Spat here. Spat all over my microphone. <laughs> just be nicer. Just be, hey, you know what? Hey, Phil. Be better. Do better. Okay? It's not that hard, okay? It's too late now. It's true. <sighs> yeah. It's a shame. It really is a shame that someone who could be so talented could just be so awful. But then we get into that whole argument of like, what causes them to be awful? Is it because everyone was propping them up on a pedestal? Is it because of the trauma he went through as a child? Was he just born that way? We don't really know. Mm-hmm. That's all I have to say about that. But he certainly was a creative. So in 1963, he puts his effort into a full-length album called A Christmas Gift to You from Phil's Records. And this was actually some of his best work. Just a classic Christmas album. In this album, that's where the original single Christmas Baby Please Come Home was created. That's where the, <sighs> that song comes from. I'm never going to look at that song the same again. I know, right? And it just so happened that this album was released on the same day that JFK was assassinated. So whoa, probably because of that, the album was a flop. It was a failure at the time. And it's been said that he pulled it from the shelves because it did not perform so well. We actually will see kind of time and time again, if Phil puts out something and it doesn't go well he gets super defensive and angry and instead of just like moving on and growing from it he'll like be nasty and blame people whatever so he pulls it interesting interestingly though this album was re-released in 1972 with different cover art and in 2018 it entered the billboard 200 albums chart for the first time peaking at number 12 which is That's so wild. It's so great. This like never happens that yeah. an, an album starts peaking on the charts 50 years after it was originally released. That's so weird. But again, like there, there are songs on there that became just classic Christmas songs. So yeah. I also wonder for the, so to go back to the failure piece, I think all, we see that with people that achieve success at such a young age, because even if they have overcome adversity, it's typically family adversity and like trauma from their childhood but professionally if they're that successful and he's making millions of dollars and putting out hit streaks and all these famous artists he's not used to people telling him no and by Uh people i mean the general public so i feel like he's just not equipped to handle that and then you throw in a a handful of childhood trauma and it's like he's just not emotionally capable of being able to say okay i'm gonna move on and it's fine yeah well said. You don't have the right tools to deal with that. Armchair psychology over here by Cart and Joss. Well, and keep in mind the, the the time too. I mean, he maybe exactly didn't have the right tools to cope. So, regardless of the Christmas album originally flopping, it was named the greatest Christmas album of all time by Rolling Stone and one of the greatest albums of the '60s by Pitchfork. Wow. And Brian Wilson again cited this album as his favorite album of all time. Brian, you're such a fanboy of this man. <laughs> I know. I actually, I didn't dig into Brian Wilson's feelings or thoughts about Phil Spector after all of this has gone down or, you know, but prior to that, he certainly spoke very highly of Phil Spector and, and demonstrated how influential he was on him. And Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys have been highly influential in American pop music and rock and roll. So he starts working with more and more like famous people as time progresses. So in 1963, he signed the Righteous Brothers to Phil's records. Oh boy. And he produced You've Lost That Love and Feelin', Unchained Melody, and Just Once in My Life. All of those. All great like, songs. Right? Oh man, so good. So my uh sorry, quick anecdote. My dad and his groomsmen at their wedding sang which one? Which one was in Top Gun? You lost, lost that love feeling. They did the whole bit at my parents' wedding. That's <laughs> precious. Oh, I know. I would pay whoa, money to see whoa, it on tape. Whoa. Yeah, me too. Did they bust out the sunglasses and everything? And oh yeah, they did the whole thing. That's awesome. <laughs> my mom had no idea it was happening. <laughs> well, so that song became super popular again because of that movie, and then yep. Unchained Melody became had a second wave of success as well after it was Ghost. featured in Ghost. Yes, exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> Can't. I love, we have a great design pickle ad where we mimic the famous <laughs> pottery scene in Ghost. Uh, Everyone go out. watch it and you'll either be horrified or impressed yeah. or both. <laughs> For sure. We, we should share that on our social media. So go check out Creatives of the Worst on Instagram. So after he works with the Righteous Brothers, he, oh, sorry, actually, let me backtrack a little bit. He eventually lost interest in the band and sold them off to another record label. So that's another thing he oh, kind of does. Like, okay. He'll pump out a couple like hits, and then just be like, meh, moving on. <laughs> okay. Typical creative. Got to find the uh-huh. next shiny object. And his next shiny object was none other than husband and wife team Ike and Tina Turner. Oh, boy. Uh-huh. And with them, he produced the hit River Deep, Mountain High, what a jam. Song. I just yeah, such a jam, such a banger. Uh, I said hit, but actually when the song came out, it was not a hit and it failed to chart higher than number 88 in the United States. Really? But he considered it to be some of his best work of all time. Kind of have to almost agree there. It's such yeah. a good song. It's iconic. Also in some great movies. But he, of course, is a bit vindictive and blamed a, a vengeful U.S. music industry for all the poor sales. So again, just kind of like pointing fingers at everyone else. Okay, bro. But because of the failure of this song and this album, he really started to withdraw from the public eye. And we will continue to see this behavior from Phil Spector where he gets super reclusive and has a lot of erratic behavior. Again, typical creative. Not surprised by any of this. Yeah. Well, I mean, we say that, but there are plenty of creatives out there who don't act that way, too. Uh, True. But given a lot of the people that we cover, yes, I mean, I feel like I'm name-dropping Brian Wilson so many times in this episode, but he kind of had that same, I don't know, he he kind of turned away from the public eye and became really reclusive. Didn't, did Prince Salinger. go through that, too? Oh, Salinger, yep. yes. Prince, Salinger, yeah. Yeah. And there were reports of just super strange behavior from him at this time. He wasn't in the public eye, but people were still saying that he was drinking very heavily and started his kind of touting his gun collection. Oh. A lot of foreshadowing here, but Phil Spector was obsessed with guns. Great. Had a collection of handguns and uh, kind of more on this later. But during this time, after he kind of disappeared from the public eye, he married Veronica Ronnie, that's her nickname, Bennett, who was the lead singer of the Ronettes. Now let's pause here and talk about his marriage because this is where things take a super dark turn. Definitely going to talk about some domestic abuse here, so tune out if you don't want to hear that. But Trigger warning. Uh-huh. So he marries her, but prior to this, he w- had already been married to his first wife, and so it's kind of, the timelines are a little funky, but it's pretty much assumed that he had an affair with Ronnie and they end up getting married, but their six year marriage is straight out of a horror movie. It is terrifying. When they first met, they were working on music together. Ronnie was kind of like Phil's dream girl. He was super obsessed with her voice. Of course, thought it was just like, Oh my gosh, it's so dreamy. And she said it was kind of like a fairy tale at first, but we'll come to find that Things behind closed doors were not a fairy tale at all. And in Ronnie's memoir that came out, I think in the late 90s, she reveals a lot of the abuse that went down. Oh, boy. Phil Spector was super tyrannical. He essentially treated her like a prisoner and subjected her to major psychological torture. I have chills. This is so gross and icky. Starting off the, the first year of their marriage, so they adopted a son together. Okay, cool. But then uh, shortly after, as a Christmas present, I even wrote in parentheses here, barf, (laughs) he surprised her by adopting a set of twins. Didn't tell her, was just like, hey, Merry Christmas. We have two new adopted children now. Kids are not puppies. No, at all. So how do you draw that connection? Pretty sure you'd want your partner's opinion on if you're going to have more children or not and expand your family that way but okay one would think one would think but uh, he's obviously not well (laughs) in the head and it just gets worse from here Uh, again this is when he was uh, totally reclusive not in the public eye at all and living in his mansion i think in beverly hills and it turns out he actually had her like held 
captive in this mansion. She's locked inside. He took her shoes away so she couldn't go outside at all. And he even made her drive around with a life-size doll of himself anytime she was permitted to go outside. Just as a reminder. I feel like hmm. I'm going to throw up. Yeah. My heart is racing so fast right now. So now you can see why I was horrified and mm-hmm. almost didn't, I didn't even record this episode because this is just a disgusting human being. This is not going to be an episode where at the end we're like, oh, I don't know, maybe either he's okay, he's just redeeming qualities. No, this is not okay, and it just gets worse. Even his sons have stated that at the time they were also held captive in the home. These poor children who were adopted by him, oh, two of which... Uh, Ronnie had no idea about. It was just like, oh, here's a Christmas gift. Disgusting. So horrified. Uh, It seems like he was treating his family like the groups, like the musical groups. Like they're just commodities to him. 100%. Yes. But also worse. So it's like beyond because, yeah, uh, he took it another level of sudden just treating them like uh, instruments. He's treating them even I don't even know. It's it's bad. There I'm are sure no there, words. This is all I'm going to talk about with that because I I think that there are worse stories that she talks about in her memoir. But I think you get the gist of how awful yep. he was and how abusive yep. he was. Fortunately, in 1972, she was able to escape with the help of her mother, literally running outside barefoot in a getaway car to escape from this man. It, it reminded me of R. Kelly, honestly, with, yep. I don't know if you've watched any of those documentaries, but... I refuse. Yeah, they, those girls were locked in his home, and the mothers had to come and, and help them escape. It's so it's horrible. Awful. It's so awful. So she escapes in 1972, but I'm going to kind of go back a little bit, because in 1969, he returns to music from his little creepy hiatus here, and signed with A&M Records. He achieved a little bit of success with a song called Black Pearl, which was deemed a socially conscious song in praise of black women. Okay. I'm going to also stop here because I read a very interesting NPR article called The Voices of Black Women Were Essential to Phil Spector's Wall of Sound. And it really talks about kind of what you said before, where it's like people who are treated just like instruments, but specifically in Phil Spector's case, because his wall of sound, which became so famous, relied heavily on the vocals of black women. Of course. And there's this great quote that says, the woman who brought their vocal skill to Spectre's productions experienced manipulation and erasure, practices Spectre routinely employed to minimize their contributions and help advance the narrative of a singular, solitary genius. So he's definitely treating these vocalists like instruments. And on one hand, at this time in the 60s, this is when rock and roll is really propping up black singers and black musicians at a time where uh-huh. that wasn't always the case. So there are people arguing of like, well, Phil Spector is like helping them get success and like giving them work, but he would produce records without their knowledge or without giving them credit. <laughs> and he would consider himself the star of the show, despite all of the vocals being like, hypercritical to all of the song's success. I mean, they were the ones who were, you know, singing it and adding these beautiful layers. So I just thought that was an interesting, I don't know, and even going back to his wife, who was a black woman, some, again, could say like, well, he was married to her, but we see how awfully he was abusing her. So uh, that's not love. That's not love. That's using someone and, and abusing them, really. I feel like we're referencing a lot of other episodes in this, but I feel like he takes the worst parts of everyone we've covered thus far and has all of them. And with this particular piece, he's reminding me of P.T. Barnum and just like exploiting the shit out of people. Yeah, totally. Yes. Agree. That's a great comparison. A lot of exploitation here. A lot of it. None of it's good. And with that, let's take a quick break. I think we need it. Hey, Jess, what do you call a pickle lullaby? I don't know, Kate. Tell me. A cucumber slumber number. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I did not see that coming. (laughs) Mm, Nope. That joke may have been the worst, but Design Pickle is not the worst. 
definitely not the worst. And there's a reason that Design Pickle has been ranked on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies in America for the past two years. And it's because they aren't the worst. No, Design Pickle offers flat rate unlimited graphic design and creative services with unlimited revisions, brand profiles, a Zapier integration, Adobe source files, all that good stuff. And we have a special deal for all of you listeners. So if you're listening to our nonsense and you need graphic design help or custom illustration help, you can use the code WORST at checkout to get $100 off your first month of any plan. That's coupon code WORST, W-O-R-S-T, for $100 off any plan of Design Pickle, our Essentials plan, our Pro plan, custom illustrations. Just head over to designpickle.com and select the plan that's right for you and get $100 off. And get creating. And we're back. And you know what, Jess? We're going to talk about the Beatles now. The Beatles, man. Yeah. This is a bright spot in the episode. Well, yeah. I don't know about that. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So in 1970, the Beatles manager, Alan Klein, brought Phil over to England to work with John Lennon on his solo album. And that proved to be successful. So He ended up getting invited by Lennon and George Harrison to produce the Beatles' abandoned album, Get Back, but with a new name, and that would be Let It Be. Yeah, so he gets to work on producing Let It Be and made huge changes to all the songs and the composition of all the songs, incorporating his famous wall of sound. And Let It Be was released actually a month after the Beatles broke up. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And we'll come to see that Phil perhaps had a bit of a hand in the Beatles breakup. There were obviously other issues going on, but shocker, Color I know. surprise. Jess just rolled her eyes into the back of her head. So. <laughs> I think they're stuck there now. <laughs> I know. But let it be topped all the charts in both the U.S. and the U.K., and the number one U.S. single was Long and Winding Road, But Phil's composition of the song really pissed off Paul McCartney. He was royally pissed. He hated Phil's version of Let It Be in general, but particularly that song, because Paul McCartney had originally composed the song as a piano ballad. And he was so mad, in fact, that he wrote a very angry letter to Phil, demanding that he undo his work and never work with him again. Uh, You don't piss off Phil, or Phil, you don't piss off Paul. You don't, yes, no, (laughs) please don't, Uh, especially don't piss off, well, piss off Phil Spector, but he is very violent, maybe don't, I don't know. Quick, just interjection, not to interrupt you, but I just will never get over when we talk about people that were prolific in like the 70s, 60s, whatever, and to show emotion, they all wrote letters, and I'll never be (laughs) over that. It's just so different than how we communicate now, and I can't imagine (laughs) sitting down and being like, dear Phil. I hate you. Sincerely, Paul. <laughs> I mean, it kind of was like that. I, I'm i not going to read the whole letter, but I highly encourage everyone to go look it up. Just search Paul McCartney's letter to Phil Spector because it's a... Uh, it's pretty great. <laughs> Definitely good uh, that. It starts with, in future, no one will be allowed to add or subtract from a record of one of my songs without my permission. And then he provides a list of how he wants the song altered and then ends with, don't ever do it again. <laughs> oh, wow. But it's true. Like, they're all from Paul's brain. Most of the songs that became hits are from Paul's brain. And you can just go in without his permission and be like okay i'm gonna change it and make it my own and then surprise it's a hit now like that's that's icky no it's the weird thing well there's all these are a bunch of creatives working together everyone has their own vision and of course paul mccartney wrote the song and he wanted to be like very stripped down and emotional whereas phil specter is like we need all these instruments we need all these new voices very different visions and and maybe it's because he knew I want to say, oh, I don't, that doesn't make sense because at this point, Paul McCartney was already famous as well. It's like they're both famous. They both have a lot of contributions, but just very different views on how the song would sound. But this has been attributed to one of the reasons that McCartney sued the other band members, eventually leading to their breakup, like I mentioned before. But Regardless of all of this drama, Phil Spector continues to produce successful solo albums for both Lennon and Harrison. 
and it includes George Harrison's multi-platinum album, All Things Must Pass. And he also produced John Lennon's iconic solo album, Imagine, including the Christmas single, Happy Christmas, War is Over. Another Why does song. he have to be behind really good I Christmas know. songs? Doesn't Why is he just ruining ruin- Christmas for me? <laughs> I just, I don't appreciate that. <laughs> like, can't I'm we have sorry. one thing? This is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> Ugh. I'm upset. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Very angry. This is an angry episode. <laughs> We're just shouting into the mics the whole time, but yeah, for good reason. For now, at this point, Phil Spector's behavior starts getting even more erratic. He already went through his reclusive stage and is drinking heavily, but it just kind of gets worse. At one point, George Harrison recalled where he had to climb down the rooftop from Phil's London hotel to get him to attend recording sessions because he wouldn't leave his room. And it's been said that Phil would require 18 cherry brandies before getting into the studio. 18? 18. One eight? Uh-huh. Good lord. 18. Like, that whole sentence is disgusting to me because it's 18 yeah. and cherry brandies? That, of Ooh. all the drinks, that's your drink of choice? Ugh. Of all the drinks. Okay. Wow. Gross Just drinks wow. for gross people. <laughs> TM. <laughs> It's our next podcast. <laughs> so he produced initial recording sessions for Lennon's covers album, Rock and Roll. But at this point, Phil was totally out of control. At one point, even brandishing a handgun in the studio and allegedly fired a shot towards Lennon while recording. Oh, my God. I just... How eerie is this, though? So while this happens... And again, okay, so uh, there's... A ton of conflicting stories about this. A lot of conflicting stories about multiple times that Phil Spector has kind of threatened people with guns, particularly in the recording studio. But it's been alleged that Lennon said, listen, Phil, if you're going to kill me, kill me. But don't fuck with my ears. I need them. Wow. That's so profound. (laughs) It's almost like, to me, that says John Lennon saw him for what he was and knew that he was super creative and would help make his records better, but didn't tolerate his bullshit. And people like Phil probably didn't even care or no. understand what he was saying. I mean, how do you handle someone like that? If someone is pointing a gun at you and perhaps has already shot towards you, you're probably going to say anything to just stay alive at that point. A tip would be to maybe not work with people that would have a propensity to shoot at you, but that's, that's just, a, it's a thought. That's a good Hot tip. tips. Yes. But because of all of this, and after several months of all this tension just escalating, they did part ways with Phil. Bye, Phil. Yeah, bye. So in 1974, Phil Spector was in a near-fatal car accident in Hollywood where he was thrown from the windshield of his car. Oh, boy. He sustained a ton of head injuries, including 300 stitches to the face and 400 in the back of his head. Whoa. When I was reading about this, because we may have talked about this before, Jess, but you and I know that head injuries can often cause changes to behavior, changes in mood. Yep. But we're seeing this well after he's already proven to be a bit unstable and erratic. So perhaps it exacerbated it but I-, I wouldn't say that's the cause of it that is interesting you took the thoughts right out of my head for the use because i was thinking his whole career would make a lot more sense if this happened at the start of it rather than mm-hmm. later so who knows i mean it very well could have caused it and been the root issue if something got severely altered in his brain which sounds like with that many stitches probably happened but he was already shooting at people so Yeah. I don't think it really was (laughs) the cause here. Who knows? But he certainly, he almost died. I mean, a police officer came upon the scene and his pulse was barely, barely faint. If the police officer hadn't arrived, he most definitely would have have died at that point. Was he drinking? Just a quick question on that. I don't think so. I didn't see anything that said that he was drinking. I couldn't find a lot of information about like what led up to the accident. All we know is that it was really bad. He survived, had over 700 stitches. And this was when he started to wear 
the outlandish wigs that he has come to be kind of famous for. And people suspect that he started wearing these wigs to conceal all of the scarring on his head and face, interestingly enough. Yeah. After the accident, he reemerges to work with Leonard Cohen, who's a musician and poet, on the album called Death of a Ladies' Man. And these two did not get along at all. It's very <laughs> interesting that they ended up even working together. There's plenty of stories about how they got into pretty violent arguments. But they ended up writing over a dozen songs together in, in three weeks. And during those three weeks, I mean, there was a lot of alcohol <laughs> of alcohol being consumed uh it's so wild to me that over and over again throughout this episode it's been like they really didn't get along but they kept working together like i I just don't i get that creatively you want to find someone that maybe you don't agree with in life but you agree with on creative things Mm -hmm. but if you dislike someone to their core why still work with them i don't get it i cannot speak for leonard cohen but Imagine this. I mean, he has the opportunity to work with someone who just worked with the Beatles. What do you do? That's so uh, true. Not that you should, but no, uh, that but, would be I mean, a sticky situation. You're seeing the creativity and like their output. I mean, imagine it. I mean, it's still insanely popular, but you're seeing that and you want to just be part of it at that point. Uh-huh. But I don't I think it's harder to separate yourself. What I'm getting is... It's harder to separate yourself from that than we think. And we can all sit here and say, oh, we would just say no. But in the moment when you're trying to make it, who knows? Exactly. And I've read in different articles that there were definitely two sides to Full Spectre, kind of like a a Jekyll and Hyde situation. From what I've read, like I just see him as Mr. Hyde. (laughs) Or is it the other way around? I don't know. But the evil one. You know what I mean? I pick it up. And... (laughs) Like, but I wonder if maybe there were moments where he was just like super encouraging and nice and whatever and kind of suckering people in. But then, well, even going back to his marriage with Ronnie, I mean, she said it was like a fairy tale at first and he was just like so loving, blah, blah, blah. But then he ends up being insanely abusive and scary. Yeah. So maybe there is something to that where you kind of get suckered in being like, wow, I'm going to work with this super successful producer who's worked with the Righteous Brothers, Ike and Tina Turner, the Beatles. What an opportunity. And then, sure enough, once again, the guns come out because their arguments would get violent. And one night, Phil Spector shoved a revolver against Leonard Cohen's neck and said, Leonard, I love you. And Leonard Cohen pushed the barrel away and said, I hope you do, Phil. And then that was that. What the hell? (laughs) This is all basically from a horror movie. Uh Uh-huh. It's terrifying. It really is. Yeah, because I I think, I don't know, we've said this before, but musicians or singers, artists are always kind of on the forefront, but they really are at the mercy of the producers. And 100%. With someone with so much power that can make or break you, the levels of, of power are off and uh. it's it's all scary and icky and wild and really the only word that keeps popping into my head is sociopath yes that's the only word especially if he's luring people in by pretending he's nice like he's just a manipulation master at that point uh-huh again that, that this is just our opinions or theories we don't actually know but it continues. So in 1979, he starts working with legendary punk band, the Ramones, and unsurprisingly causing more conflict with them. It's been stated that Phil Spector was super obsessive and at one point was making Johnny Ramone play the same chord for hours and hours upon end, kind of like torturing him almost. Yeah. Like you have to get it right, but it would be like 12 hours of just listening to the same thing over and over again. No. And shocker, the gun comes out again. So he allegedly threatened members of the band with a gun. There are a ton of conflicting stories about what really happened, but Dee Dee Ramone claims that he essentially like kidnapped the band, was holding them at ransom, like pulling the gun out when they tried to leave a session and threatening to kill them. Another member of the band said, like, oh no, that never happened. The gun was there, but he didn't kidnap us. But regardless, 
why is there even a gun in the recording studio in the first place? My thought on that is where there's smoke, there's fire. Why would people mm-hmm. just say that for funsies? You're not just going to make up that story. I think they were the type of band that wanted to be known for their music and didn't really care for the, I said this earlier, but the extracurricular stuff. And so that band member, maybe they were going through PTSD or something and like couldn't process it. But It's very traumatic. Extremely yeah, traumatic. Yeah, it's... There's no way that that didn't happen, in my opinion, based on his prior history. Yeah. And I think you kind of nailed it because they said like they weren't used to working with someone who was so obsessive because they're they're their mouths. They're punk. They're like, they're going to yeah. do whatever they want. Like, whatever, man. Yeah. And now they're working no with this guy who is terrifying and threatening and obsessive and crazy. And they're like, we were told we're going to get like a great album out of this. But instead, it's just scary and abusive the hits that came from this session were super popular but there was also a group of fans that didn't like it because it wasn't the traditional ramon sound interesting after this though we're getting into the like the 80s and he remained pretty inactive phil specter did between like the 80s 90s and early 2000s he was inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame in 1989 and this is oh man I can't find footage of it because they have scrubbed it from the internet. Sure they have. But he arrived with three bodyguards who were armed, of course. And when he comes to accept the award, he gave just a super rambling, incoherent speech, was probably super, super drunk, and then basically just like stumbles off stage. His security guards have to, oh. to pull him off. Good. That's yeah. great. Great look for Phil. As you're getting inducted into a Hall of Fame. That's really, that's the look most people should go for. So after this whole debacle, Jess, we know that that Phil has a history of violence. We certainly have recognized that at this point. So now we do have to get into the murder. I knew it was coming. Still not prepared mentally. I am not going to give a ton of details on this. Uh, You can definitely look it up if you want to. It's all awful, but... I mean, it's kind of like this is where everything, it kind of gets to a point where it's just this person has gone unchecked. He's been reported to already threaten a ton of people. I didn't even talk about all the people he's threatened with guns. Those were just like a handful. There were others. I'm sure it would be like a five-hour podcast episode if we did that. And I don't want to give him five hours. So on February 3rd, 2003, actress Lana Jean Clarkson was found dead from a single gunshot wound in Phil's home. They had met that night, Lana and Phil, while she was working at House of Blues as a waitress. And he waited for her to get off her shift. And in the early hours of the morning, they left together in his limo, drove to his mansion. And roughly an hour later, the limo driver heard a gunshot or heard a popping sound, and saw Phil leave through the back door with a gun. In the 911 call, uh, you can, well, I don't know if you can hear it. I didn't listen to it, but it's been alleged that you can hear Phil Spector saying as he's leaving, I think I just shot her. And I think I just shot her? Uh-huh. You don't know for sure? Uh-huh. <sighs> okay. Uh-huh. And this a-hole, I mean, he was charged, but he remained free on a million-dollar bail while awaiting trial, which makes me so mad. Yeah, let's just let a killer run around L.A. That's great. Right? Great job. Just, this was in 2003, and the first trial doesn't even begin until 2007. So he's free for four years. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And shortly after the actual murder, he reportedly emailed friends explaining, well, she died of an accidental suicide, like already trying to cover his tracks. And this is what his defense used. That was their argument was that she was depressed because she was a struggling actress and she was so sad she couldn't get work. So she committed suicide. Yeah. So like I said before, the first trial begins in 2007. And even at this trial, it was televised as a huge public debacle he would wear these like crazy wigs each day in court you may have seen the pictures of him with like that wild insane wig and he was wearing like crazy outfits on top of this go go check that out or don't because he's a piece of trash but because it took so long he was still producing music at this time my god Jess looks like she's gonna faint right now i'm just i'm out of eye rolls i'm just exasperated at this point (laughs) Yeah. While he was standing trial, this is when Ike Turner passed away in in 2007. 
and he attends Ike Turner's funeral. And in classic piece of trash fashion, he goes up on stage to give a eulogy and ends up just like trashing Tina Turner for no reason. First of Uh, all, stay away from Tina. Right? Stay away. Keep her name out of your mouth. Goodbye. Yeah. Well, he criticizes her autobiography saying that like, oh, she was just vilifying Ike and Ike made Tina Turner. There wouldn't be a Tina Turner without Ike and all this awful stuff. But okay. Exactly. Just gross. But then he is retried for murder in the second degree in 2008. And as we know, he was found guilty, sentenced to 19 years to life. And just the reason why I really <laughs> thought of covering this person is because, like I said before, he made the news again in December of 2020, so just a couple months ago, when he was diagnosed with COVID while he was in prison. And in just, well, just a couple weeks ago, in January 2021, he passed away from complications with COVID at 81 years old. So... That is the life of Phil Spector. I just, I have a hard time not showing empathy to people, but in this case, I couldn't care less about not giving, like, oh, poor guy or whatever. No, No. I have nothing. I have nothing nice to offer up because what a terrible human being. And I don't even want to debate if he was the worst because we've made it clear the whole episode. You've made that (laughs) exceedingly clear. Horrible, horrible human. And these poor artists, like, good for them for getting the success from it and i hope that they have more royalty money than he does from all of these successful records but holy shit Mm -hmm. i wow wow yeah i obviously was not able to cover all of the stuff that he did because he was behind so many more hits that i haven't even listed worked with so many other artists quick tidbit here i forgot to add this in my notes but i just wanted to point out at one point he really wanted to work with my girl celine dion and tried to record an album with her didn't work out celine dion her camp was like heck no not phil specter you go she's a queen and she gets it she gets it she gets it Uh, apparently they did record some music together but it's never been released and i don't know if we'll ever hear it but yeah um so, yeah, we're we're not even going to debate whether or not he's the worst. I think we're both on the same page with that. But I think the only fitting way to wrap up this episode is to kind of just have a discussion about how he was able to create such a legacy yeah. despite being such a garbage human being. And I found this another amazing article from the LA Times. It's called Phil Spector and the Damaging Myth of Male Creative Genius. I feel like that kind of sums it all up right there. Yeah. The article also starts with the line, to know him was to loathe him, which is a play off the teddy bear song, to know him is to love him. And I think that's also kind of how a lot of people feel is like to know him is just to know what an awful human being he was. But it talks about how a a lot of these typically artists, but producers like Phil Spector are put up on a pedestal and just praised for their creative genius. And that's not, we can't deny that. Like, we know that the stuff that he created has changed the course of history. It's changed music entirely. But where do we draw the line? How do we prevent these people from getting away with the stuff that they do? And For years and decades on end. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what bothers me so much about it, because Again, I'm thinking of another terrible person, but Harvey Weinstein comes to mind because it's like he got away with being for years and not one person could do anything about it. And it's like we're now talking about Phil Spector again because he passed away. But it's like we weren't even really talking about him after the murder trial, how terrible he was. Uh It's just it's so interesting to me for the sake of art that this has gone on. And everyone kind of put their own creativity and artistic side ahead of decency and humanity mm-hmm. and just looked the other way. And I, it's, wow. 100%. And, oh, man, when you bring up Harvey Weinstein's name, I just want to 
punch a wall, to be honest. But same kind of deal. Yep. It's like this this one person who has so much control, and it shouldn't be that way. There shouldn't be like one person who can make or break everyone's careers. Totally. And and how how did they get there? I don't know a ton about Harvey Weinstein's life and road to fame. After doing this episode, I don't even want to cover him because just nope. barf. But one thing is clear, like. Phil Spector was really good at pushing emotion in music. They call him kind of like the king of like, well, I don't say the king of pop, but like he revolutionized kind of that youth culture pop music. But instead of just making it sugary sweet, it was like really drawing from those emotions, using these different voices, different instruments to capture the agony of being young and whatnot. But you can even tell, like, looking back in a lot of the songs that he created, there's still violence in a lot of his songs. Like, right. I mean, he hit me and it felt like a kiss. That's an obvious one. But a lot of his songs are kind of violence covered with this kind of sugary pop music feel and sound. And it's also just he bullied musicians. He yeah. he was a bully in a lot of ways. And that's just a nice way to put it. He's worse than a bully. He's a murderer. <laughs> I have to wonder if he... It almost seems to me like his emotional side came out via music and he was terrible at expressing himself. Obviously, he pulled guns on people instead of having conversations if there are disagreements. But I have to wonder if all of that stems back to losing his dad the way that he did. And probably not if his mom was overbearing. He probably wasn't ever given a chance to actually grieve and deal with the emotions he felt from losing his dad. And that probably, I mean, again, all our opinion and speculation here, but that contributed, I'm guessing, so much to how he processed things and handled things mm-hmm. because he, it seems like he always reverted back to being a child about stuff and like, okay, well, now I'm a child with a gun, so I'll just do that. Yeah. But like, yeah. not even processing or dealing with things in a normal way if there's confrontation or disagreement or whatever, just automatically knee jerk reaction is, oh, let me just like pull my gun out. And I think not being able to process your emotions is probably the biggest cause of that. Well said. And the times, like the, that yep. era where men can can kind of get away with this stuff and then sweep it under the rug because they're so accomplished. And I wonder too if, you know, are things changing now? Is it different? I mean, yes, I would say to an extent, uh, maybe these people can't get away with as much. But We'll see. I guess we'll see in, in years to come. And we still hear about, I mean, Kesha, her whole story with, yes, you know, and we, that's probably a whole other episode right there. But it seems like it's still happening. And you have to wonder, it lends itself to a bigger discussion that we definitely don't have time for today, but about the music industry in general and the, the format by which people produce music and work with producers. Is it actually conducive to success for the artist and happiness for the artist? Or is it just the power is all in the producer. Mm-hmm. I think they're they're mostly following the money. I want to add one final quote here from uh, Stevie Van Zant of the E Street Band. He said that Spectre was a genius, irredeemably conflicted. He was the ultimate example of art, always being better than the artist. He made some of the greatest records in history based on the salvation of love while remaining incapable of giving or receiving love his whole life. Wow. And with that, that is Phil Spector. I would love to hear from our listeners and what what they think of Phil Spector. Or even like if our listeners want to hear episodes like this, because I honestly had had trouble putting this together because I was so horrified by all of it. I want to cover more Martha Stewart's, but uh, (laughs) we're all ears to hear what what people want to listen to. So please let us know at at podcastdesignpickle.com. We are in no way affiliated with Phil Spector, just to be clear. Nope. We're Design Pickle. We're, we're changing lives through creativity, but in a happy and healthy way. <laughs> no guns. No guns ever. No guns. Ugh. No. God, I feel icky. Like, I need to go take a shower now. But I do think I want to point out, this is a tough one to get through, and you handled it brilliantly. And I do think it's important that we talk about people like this, because... It's not all rainbows and butterflies and puppies, even though I wish it was. Exactly. It's true. It's history. It's it's part of our, our story and uh, the story of music. So we can't just, yeah, we can't just sweep it under the rug. We have to acknowledge it and move on from there. 
Yep. So, Jess, I think I'm going to go drown my sorrows in some Teddy Grahams. I think I'm going to choose some goldfish. And I think they're the snack that smiles back. So I think we'll automatically feel better. I agree. Sounds like a plan. Until next week, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Creatives Are the Worst. If you like what you're hearing, or if you think that we're the worst, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. We'd love to hear from you. You can also contact us directly at podcasts at designpickle.com. And a big thanks to Design Pickle for sponsoring the show. Join us next week as we once again try to answer the question, are creatives the worst? <laughs>